Blog Talk Radio. Oh, there he is. You got three minutes. Yeah, we're good. Oh, I can't hear nothing. What's going on? I'm sorry? Dustin. Where's Dustin at? No, no, we're live. We're not plugged in. Hey, Tisha. Yeah, they're barely, you can barely hear. It is a dream in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self evident. That all men are created equal. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I say to you today, my friend. Let freedom ring. Let freedom ring. And when this happens, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual. Free at last, free at last. Thanks, God Almighty. We are free at last. It could take weeks for a federal judge to decide the legality of North Carolina's voter ID law. The law requires that each voter present a photo ID unless they have a reasonable impediment, in which case the voter could cast a provisional ballot. Problematic because in North Carolina, more than half of provisional ballots cast in 2014 were rejected. So who is affected by this law? According to Democracy North Carolina, more than 300,000 North Carolinians who are registered voters but do not have government IDs, and African Americans are a disproportionate share of this group. It's not just North Carolina. There are 33 states that have voter ID laws active for the 2016 election. The darker the green on this map, the stricter the voter ID law. So why the spotlight on North Carolina? When the Department of Justice filed its lawsuit against North Carolina two and a half years ago, then Attorney General Eric Holder said the bill was explicitly adopted with the purpose and will have the result of denying or bridging the right to vote on account of race, color, or membership in a language minority group. The NAACP also sued, calling the bill discriminatory against blacks and Hispanics. North Carolina has a history of racial discrimination. Because of that, up until a few years ago, North Carolina was one of several states that had to get permission from the federal government before enacting new voting laws. And welcome in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, and tonight we deal with a very important issue, and I'll tell you what, it's dealing with bias and racial disparities within our American elections. Tonight we visit that. Folks, hang on to your seat. 
voter situations affecting African-American and minorities in America. We deal with that topic right now. Hang on, AJC Radio kicks off. And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart, Dennis Merritt, William Williams tonight. Lisa is off. And tonight we are touching on issues uh, that is really making headlines in our news regarding the attempt, at least, to stifle the vote of African-Americans across this nation. And it is not not the first time that we have seen a conspiracy, uh, at least theory uh, and facts that support that argument. And folks are, are speaking to that issue tonight, and I'll tell you right now, this is something that needs to be addressed, and uh, we're going to get into that here momentarily. But first, our disclaimer for our listeners before we get kicked off. We are not attorneys, and a just cause does not provide legal advice. Please contact, contact your personal legal advisor for your legal needs. Also, the opinions expressed by callers and guests do not necessarily reflect that of a just cause or AJC radio. As always... Thank you for tuning in and choosing to spend your time with us this evening. And thank you for that, William. And uh, we appreciate all of our listeners, uh, not only in America, our listeners in Australia. A shout out to Danielle, her, t- her friends out there that support AJC Radio and the Just Cause and what we do. And also our listeners in the U.K., all around the globe. And again, all of our listeners here in the United States, we appreciate you uh, joining in. Uh, joining to t- deciding rather, excuse me, I've got a little tongue twisted there, deciding to tune in. Uh, to AJC Radio, and we appreciate that tonight. And uh, I'll tell you what, as we begin to talk about the attempts and the efforts, Dennis, uh, in trying to manipulate votes, uh, we're going to deal with those issues that uh, address those issues very, very clearly. Your thoughts as we see, you know, it took a long time. The Civil Rights Act that was passed in 1965, which gave African Americans the right to vote. Uh, We live in an age now where uh, they're using the same tactics. It just has a different face on it, but it's racism. And it's to keep the black vote out of the election. Your thoughts on that is we have seen legislation, uh, and it's disguised behind legislation. But the legislation, and actually the Supreme Court of the United States, and the state Supreme Courts of these states, rather, have been shooting the attempt down. But the simple fact that we're having a discussion that can manipulate an election and not get African-Americans to vote. And this, this goes back as far as Obama's first election and his re-election, it, trying to ensure that President Obama was not ever elected as the first African-American president here in the United States. Your thoughts? Hey, my thoughts, again, hey, I, I just think about, if, if you look at it, uh, the, the minority vote, the black vote, is, is going to be very big uh, this, this election. And to uh, try to stifle it or stop it or uh, minimize it uh, is in the favor of those that are trying to keep blacks from voting. But uh, I, I tell you that it, the black vote is very important. And if we don't, if we don't as a people get out and voice our disconcerns with, you know, them trying to stop, uh, the, you know, the black vote, we got to get out and make sure they understand, no, you're not going to stop us. We're going to vote. And then again, with the laws that are being put in place, like you said, uh, you know, they're fighting it. But there's still a few out there that want to make sure that the black vote 
does not get in. Well, we're going to get into that conversation. You'll find in the rulings that came down, especially in North Carolina, uh, the rulings that came down said that they were blatantly offensive targeting the African-American communities and minorities, not only the African-Americans, but the Latino vote as well. And when the appellate court, the appellate court came down and said, this is categorically unconstitutional and will be, it it is struck down at least there. People are saying that, wait a minute, are we going too far uh, in addressing this issue? And the appellate court seems to be on the side of the people uh, in this case. And when we, uh, when we look and see, in, in some states, you know, their Supreme Court has said that that the laws that they have put in place directly, you know, uh, affect and are targeted toward and, you know, are discriminatory toward African-Americans and, like you say, other minorities. That how do you have – how do you put in – how do you try to get legislature in a state, in a county, in a city – to say, okay, we are expressly uh, targeting minorities that are trying to vote, and when you when you do that, I mean, it, it has been, uh, you know, typically on a democratic from a democratic issue that most minorities will vote democratic. So you have some uh, other Republican legislators that try to put laws in place that basically say, you know, for this reason or that reason, you can't vote. You have to have this piece of documentation. You have to have of this longevity at your residence, and they said it expressly targeted African Americans. When when you look at it, you say, how could you be? You know, there's no other word for it. How could you be that racist in trying to create your laws? And it it shows so much when we say, you know, people need to get out and not only go to the polls in the general election to elect their president, but you need to go out and elect those uh, county officials, those city officials, exactly. because these are the type of, uh, you know, of decisions they're making. And when you can say, OK, you can decide who can vote and who can't, that decision was made a long time ago during the civil rights movement. We shouldn't even be hashing that back out. I mean, the fact that the discussion is even on the table is is absolutely insane. Uh, shouldn't even be having this discussion in 2016. But we have found that racism is alive and well in America. And there's no getting around that. And uh, we're going to deal with that tonight. When you are at the point, and I'll tell you what, all the states included here are red states uh, that are, are saying, and, and one, and we'll hear more about this uh, as far as in Alabama, uh, whereas the governor or the, I believe it was the governor, they shut down about 19 uh, Department of Motor Vehicle locations in urban areas wow. so when people because they they're telling you need to renew your license have an id we're going to shut down 19 offices where you can't go to get right. your license renewed you don't have transportation you know you're in the, the poorest areas that is that but when you think about that you say 19 dmv wow think, think about the state of colorado you think alabama's maybe what probably about the same size as colorado uh you know, square footage wise. But if you say 19 offices, so if you had an office that was every 10 square miles, you're talking about people having to travel over 1,900 miles to go find another DMV. This is ridiculous. Well, and they're, they're, what they're speaking to the fact is that these are steps, and and I and I believe it was 19, but it was a huge number. And they said that, that were targeted within the urban community, within the minority community. So 
if we pass laws that say you have to have an up-to-date license, but you shut down the very office right. so you can't that I can it. go get it done, Uh-oh. and then you shut them down in a way that, okay, for you to go get your renewed license, if, you don't, if you're taking public transportation, if you have to you know, take a cab, get on the bus, so it's going to take you eight hours to make your way to a DMV that can renew your license because we shut them all down up and down the, uh, you know, basically in the entire city. When the person who made that call and said, hey, we're shutting down, they need to be put. Why did you have this many DMV offices but, shut down uh, during the election time when you know people need to go renew their license? Who well, made that call? Well, they went as far as in some cases, you'll hear about it tonight, folks. Uh, in some cases where uh, they wanted to cancel after hours voting, where you had a so eight to five you could vote, over a hundred and forty-seven thousand people vote in that particular district and county after five o'clock after hours because these are working families, right. these are people who have to go to their job. These are the steps mm. that were being taken to say, look, and they call it legislation. And it's legislation with a big R, racist. That's all it is. Exactly. And when you start saying, I can't get off work and exercise my constitutional right to vote for democracy because I get off at 5 o'clock, but now I can't vote. That is, I mean, I don't know if people understand the ramifications of that. That is as far out there in, in left field that you can get without just calling it what it is. How do you do that? How do you justify it? Thus far, the states, the Supreme State Supreme Court has said, we will strike that down. We will not tolerate or allow that to happen. And thank God for that. Yes. Because yes. otherwise, you're looking at a, a system that, uh, that, that does the African-American and the minority communities a huge disservice, and you wonder why there's no faith in the system. For African-Americans, when somebody gets up and says black lives matter, black votes matter, exactly. Latino votes matters, Asian votes matters. Well, I think they understand that now. They, 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 I mean, because those votes put Obama in the White House. Those votes, you know, united. They show, it showed the power. They didn't want to see that. They wanted to ignore it. So in 2008, when President Obama was elected, you know, it was heavily by the minorities of our society, yep. the, 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 those of color, and also women. You know, the, he had a large female vote, if I remember correctly. Uh, he was very popular. He was very popular with the minorities. So right now, if we can truncate that off, we can try to keep them people, most of those people, from voting or have the ability to vote, or they can't vote due to, you know, either restrictions based on ID or the facilities are closed, they don't have means to it, then – you know, we're going to tilt the scales our way or tip the scales our way. And that's what happens. They understand now the power of that vote. They can't get that vote. And that's it. No, absolutely. And we're going to get into more of that as well. Right now, we go to some current news, folks. Um, this is a bad one. Another unarmed uh, African-American male shot dead uh, without justification and without cause. And the man's hands actually were up in the air. Uh, at the time of his shooting. And we're going to get into that. The uh, story comes out of Tulsa. Uh, it looks like Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa police say man had no gun. Video shows he had hands up. And this uh, comes from the Associated Press. An unarmed black man killed by a white Oklahoma officer. 
who was responding to a stalled vehicle can be seen in police video walking away from officers and toward his SUV with his hands up before he approaches the driver's side door where he drops to the ground after being shot with a stun gun, then fatally shot. Wow. In Tulsa police helicopter footage that was among several clips released Monday showing the shooting of 40-year-old Terrence Crutcher and its aftermath, the man in the helicopter that arrives above the scene as Crutcher walks to the vehicle can be heard saying, time for a taser. He then says, that looks like a bad dude, too. Probably on something. I'm going to pause right there. You talking about profiling? That's profiling. But you are in a helicopter. Come on. But yet, some kind of way, you can, uh, you know, you can discern the situation to say, this dude looks like he's on something. Why? Because he's a black man that's walking away from the police. He's walking away. It's like, okay, my car is here abandoned. Why are you bothering me? I haven't done anything. I'm just here trying to get my car off the side of the road. What's the problem? I don't have any weapons. As you can see, my hands are up. Hey, I don't have any weapons. I'm going back to my business. What happens to you? You check in your abandoned car. You get shot. But immediately, even before you get shot, you get profiled that you must be a bad dude. You must be on something. Why? Because you're a black man walking down the street. Is it, is it really that simple? Well, and here's the critical part of it. He didn't say, hold on, man has gun. That's not what the – he said he looks like. A bad dude, which means he served no threat to these officers. He just looks like a bad dude. Zimmerman said in the Terrence um, uh, Trayvon, Martin. Trayvon, excuse me, Trayvon Martin killing, hey, looks like he's up to something. You follow this guy because you profiled him inappropriately. You followed him. The guy had some Skittles and a iced tea. And you followed him to his own area where he lives, and you attacked this man. And you claim that I make that what make my day law goes into effect when I follow someone, and I'm aggressively to, uh, going to attack them. This right. man was well, this man was stalled on the side of the road. His car stalled. Police are going to stop and say, "Hey, what's going on? Are you okay?" You would think. No, this is an opportunity to kill another African American. Exactly. So let's just pull up. Let's walk towards him. He's got his hands up. That tells you right there he means no harm to anybody. And he ends up dead because his car stalled and a cop stopped to inquire. Enough. enough. I mean, it just irks me because – and then what you do is you try to paint paint a picture. You try to say he's on drugs. Since when is it all right to shoot someone because you believe they might be – taking some type of drug since when is it uh, it's okay to kill someone because of a theory it's ridiculous it's all about the disrespect the 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 lack of concern for the black life we just got to say it like it is that there was no reason that person that that man should have died died not at all go ahead cliff no because you you know you talked about george zimmerman and the thing that makes this worse than George Zimmerman is bad is that was well, that this is a law enforcement officer. These are the people who are put on the street to serve and protect with with uh, duty and honor. But you have a uh, you have an officer that says, "Hey, I'm just going to take it upon myself. I'm going to profile this individual because it's a black man. He's walking down the street. Uh, somebody else says, "Oh, he looks like he's a bad dude. Maybe on something." 
So we're going to end up shooting him because he's on the side of because he his car is stalled on the side of the road. And since when does a police is a police officer justified by saying I thought he had a gun? That is not police protocol. You are to only use lethal force when your life is threatened. When you see a weapon, you see somebody with a gun or a knife coming at you. That is when you use lethal force. Not because, oh, I saw his hand. Uh, I thought he had a gun. Well, it may have been this, may have been that. That is not law enforcement protocol you have to see a weapon before you fire on somebody well the problem is they had a preconceived notion of who this man was exactly so automatically you have mentally registered in your mind he has a gun and as soon as he put his hands down he sh- he signified peace when he raised him up so you already knew number one he's not under arrest mm. so if i want to put my hands down I'm not under arrest. Well, he's already showed that he was—he had no intent. But he's not under arrest. He's not under arrest. But see, this is the thing that got me reading reading through this information. She didn't walk. She didn't approach the man and ask him, "Are you okay?" Her first her first tone, at least from the information I, I was reading here, was, "Is this your vehicle?" I mean, you can kind of see you kind of see the difference here. If this was a person, I'd ha- and I'm going to say it. If this was a person that was white. If they're standing beside a vehicle and it's there, it's running, the doors open, would you would you ask them if that's their vehicle? Well, or would you ask them, are you okay? Or something, are you all right? Well, the first statement should be, hey, I understand you. You're having car trouble. You yeah. need to help me call somebody. Not automatically go to the fact this must be a criminal. Yeah. Well, the guy in the helicopter already said this looks like a bad dude. So in your mind, you've already pre you profiled this man. But, and the he, fact that you asked him the exactly. question. Is this your vehicle? And you and that and that tells you, okay, you got two officers, one in the air and one on the ground, and they are basically going through this protocol that seems like if they're African American in our district or in our jurisdiction, we're profiling them, we're looking at them. I mean, because this stuff is it's a taught behavior. You're training these officers to do this stuff. I mean, they show up. This vehicle, the, the, the information here says the vehicle was running. It was in the middle of the street. There were doors open. This was the report that was called in. The actual officer that showed up was on her way to look, appears to be a domestic violence situation, and the, she reported here. But the bottom line is if, the, if an officer in the helicopter identifies and, and basically profiles a person as look at him, he's down on the ground. Now, I may be 100 feet up in the air or 200 feet. But I can see through my eagle eye that he looks bad, and then she shows up, and she and the, she's not concerned about him. Well, she's concerned about the fact: is this your car? The problem. The bottom line is, there's not a helicopter usually required on an abandoned car. <laughs> uh, that's only on a chase. That's a good point. Uh, and he looks like a bad dude. I, I'm gonna make a correction of what the, I'm gonna interpret interpret what he said. He looks like a black dude is the proper terminology uh, that fits the mold here. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get into this a little further. This continues in America, and it's just not stopping. Why is that? You can Again, that story comes from the Associated Press. It's all over the media, and I'll tell you what, another dead African-American for a traffic stop, and not even a traffic stop, an inquiry of a man whose car broke down. He didn't leave there alive. It shows if you're a black man and you have uh, you have any type of run-in with the cops, be prepared to be killed that day. 
I mean, it, I'm on the side of the road when my car broke down and I die. I would expect the cop is there to say, hey, can I give you a, not a lift, but hey, do you need to change a spare tire? Do you is need a family you, right, you can do call? Do you need me to put my lights on to make sure nobody Something. runs into yeah. you while you change your tire? Well, no, none of that happens. Are you ready to die? Have you have you said your last words to the God that you pray to? Because rest assured, I'm coming to get you. That is what. Well. Law enforcement is saying to the black man today. Well, that's and, just the way it And is. it's probably reflective of the community, too, because he, he understood, okay, there's cops around here. Uh, they just pulled up. All this stuff going on. Let me go ahead and put my hands up for they try to, you know, but it ended up, ended up happening. Anyway. It didn't your, matter. You know, if you get a broke down car, call nine, not even 911. Run away from your vehicle <laughs> as quick as possible. So you can leave alive. This is a sad day in America, and it continues to be an issue. Ladies and gentlemen, the other side of the break, coming joining us is Nathan Whitliff Stanley. He's the executive director of the ACLU here in Colorado. He's going to be joining us on what we, the topic of this show tonight and the bias in America's, elect, in America's elections. And as the conspiracy theory, and it seems to be conspiracy, conspiracy fact, of the African-American vote being stifled. The minority vote being stifled, but under the, the mask of legislation. Tonight we touch in on the topic and the attempts that they call a Republican conspiracy to block the vote. We'll deal with that on the other side of this break. This is AJC Radio coming live from Colorado Springs, Colorado, where the temperature right now is 86 degrees, a little cloudy. And in our nation's capital, 76, mostly cloudy. You're going to hear a lot of that type of forecast as we move into the month of October. It's a very short period of time. Folks, the seasons are changing, but AJC Radio continues its march for justice as we bring the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back right after this. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experienced some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff? But he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll free at 
1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. I stand for peace. I stand for diversity. I stand for dignity. I stand for respect. I stand for fairness. Red, yellow, black, white. We're all the same color. When you turn off the light. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. And tonight is no exception as we deal with a very troubling subject that I'm sure you've heard it in the news about voter suppression. States actually uh, enacting legislation, or at least making it to enact that legislation, that will stifle the African-American and the minority vote. Uh, Different things and restrictions in these states that make it almost impossible at times for the African-American vote to get out. This has been a consorted effort, uh, and primarily, not all Republicans, but by a very select group of Republicans in red states that are enacting this type of legislation. Uh, We have found that through that legislation, namely in North Carolina, uh, that that legislation has actually been shot down uh, and and basically what they said in that report, which you'll hear momentarily, um, that deals with uh, actually striking down uh, some of that legislation. But before we go there, uh, in a few moments, we're going to be joined by Nathan Woodliffe Stanley. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, he's the executive director of the ACLU. They are known for protecting rights uh, and, and, and doing things and fighting injustices as well. Uh, and we're going to be joined by him here momentarily. Uh, and I'll tell you what, this is a very, very important topic, uh, William, as we look at, again, the voter rights that were, the people have died, have marched for yes. in yes. 1965. Do we throw that out the window? And that's why Congress began to get involved to say we cannot. And, I, and my understanding after doing my research is that the Supreme Court of the United States struck down some of the voter uh, rights, uh, Cliff, of the actual uh, civil rights uh, legislation that was passed. Right. I mean, the thing is, the, the Civil Rights, the Voter Rights Act was passed for a while. And then, you know, basically, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, they have to re-up on it. And so, you know, if you don't get the legislators to vote that, yeah, we're going to go ahead and extend this. Then it expires, which in this day and age is, uh, I mean, it's nothing short of uh, shameful in America that we even have to have that discussion. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Nathan from ACLU, that uh, that, that he's probably got the, you know, the real 
real numbers on this. But again, it is shameful that in America you can say, well, uh, the Voter Rights Act had to be revoted on. And there are some members of Congress that did not want to deal with it. And, you know, you're talking about this is post-2010, 2012. How does something like that even happen? No, absolutely. And we are privileged tonight uh, to have uh, Nathan uh, Woodliff Stanley, uh, a gentleman that, uh, I'll tell you what, is in the trenches and fighting uh, for rights of of all people. And uh, we're very, very privileged and honored to have him tonight. Nathan, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining us tonight. If I can call you that, um, yes, we we appreciate you joining us, and and we are just kind of baffled here as we've looked into this type of issue, and the fact, as I said earlier, the fact that I said earlier that the fact that we're having this discussion in 2016 about suppressing votes of African-Americans and minorities. It's shameful, as Cliff alluded to, all on its own. I'm going to let you introduce yourself to the people, Nathan, and I'll give you the floor to talk to us about your thoughts on this and what can we do uh, to ensure fairness during this election. Well, I agree that it's shameful that we're having to even have this conversation. Um, My name is against Nathan Woodliff Stanley. I'm the executive director of the ACLU of Colorado, uh, and... I, you know, we have um, some relatively good voter laws um, here in Colorado, but we've even seen, you know, issues over time here, and certainly nationally, there has been a really big problem uh, with voting rights, especially since the the Supreme Court, you know, decided in, in 2013 in uh, Shelby County uh, versus Holder uh, to strike down. Um, several provisions of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, Congress had just approved, re-approved the Voting Rights Act um, overwhelmingly. It was was not like it was a difficult thing to, to get passed. And it was the Supreme Court that decided that the coverage formula that that specified places where there had been egregious violations in the past, um, that they didn't think those applied anymore. Uh, So they struck that down, and almost immediately, of course, as soon as that was struck down, we started seeing um, efforts around the the country to to try to re- reinstate some of the obstacles to voting um, that had been there before or to create new ones. Uh, and, of course, many of those have been targeted at minority vote, African-American vote in particular, and um, we've continued to see that since 2013 in a lot of places like Wisconsin, like North Carolina, uh, which you've, you've already mentioned. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, uh, Nathan – we're in a time right now uh, in America where we're 49 days away from the most probably important election of our time. Uh, and it is critical uh, that the votes are fair uh, because of what hangs in the battles. We were discussing earlier about the young man that was killed in Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, yesterday. Uh, voting is critically important right now, given the direction of this nation. Uh, the division in this country, the racism, the bigotry in this country uh, that continues 
uh, to get out of control. And this is why the election is so important. My the hats off uh, to the courts for striking down voter registration laws uh, targeting African-Americans. Uh, and I'm going to play a clip for you, Nathan. I'm going to get your thoughts on it when we come back that deals with this uh, news report on how the court struck that down. We'll be right back with you. Thank you. Voting rights advocates have won a number of major victories that could reshape the November election. Over the past 10 days, a series of court rulings have struck down new voting restrictions in North Carolina, Wisconsin, Kansas, and Texas. On Friday, a U.S. appeals court struck down a North Carolina law that required voters to show photo identification, scale back early voting, ended out of precinct voting, and prevented residents from registering to vote on Election Day. In a remarkable judgment, the three-judge panel found North Carolina's law targeted African-Americans, quote, with almost surgical precision, unquote. The judge found the legislators wrote the law after requesting data that showed African-Americans disproportionately used early voting in both 2008 and 2012. Judge Diana Motz wrote, quote, we cannot ignore the recent evidence that because of race, the legislature enacted one of the largest restrictions of the franchise in modern North Carolina history. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, a federal judge has struck down a string of Wisconsin voting restrictions passed by the Republican-led legislature and signed by Governor Scott Walker. U.S. District Judge James Peterson wrote that the objective of the law was to, quote, suppress the reliably Democratic vote of Milwaukee's African-Americans. A week earlier, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit struck down a Texas law, which has been described as the nation's most restrictive voter ID law. In a nine to six ruling, the court found the law has, quote, a discriminatory effect on minorities' voting rights, unquote. Joining us now is Ari Berman, senior contributing writer for The Nation, where he covers voting rights. His book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, will be out in paperback tomorrow. Berman's recent piece for the nation is called The Country's Worst Anti-Voting Law Was Just Struck Down in North Carolina. Ari, welcome back to Democracy Now! Good morning, Explain what happened there first. So the decision in North Carolina, in my opinion, was the biggest victory for voting rights since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. And it was so significant because North Carolina passed the country's worst voting restrictions. As you mentioned, they didn't just require strict voter ID, they cut back on early voting, they eliminated same-day voter registration, they eliminated out-of-precinct voting, they eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds, and they did so just a month after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act. And John Roberts said, that voting discrimination was largely a thing of the past. So both what North Carolina did and when they did it made this ruling so significant. Well, there you have it. Wow. I mean, he's just running down a list of every restriction he could possibly think of. And here's what's, here was, Nathan, here's what's really, and I'm going to get your thoughts in a moment. Let me, matter of fact, let me get your thoughts now. When you hear that, what in the world is going on in this country? Well, there are some people who think it's in their or their party's interest that for people not to vote. Um, and, and so there have been battles. We know there have been battles throughout our country's history about who can vote and who can't. It's one of the critical elements of democracy in this country. Um, and what it tells me is those battles still aren't over. We're still fighting them. 
uh, that was a great victory. That was actually a really excellent clip. It really described very well um, what has happened recently. Um, the ACLU, of course, is very pleased at these decisions that are striking down some really bad laws. Uh, we wish it hadn't been possible for those laws to be passed in the first place if there hadn't been the actions taken by, you know, by the Supreme Court. Um, ACLU's worked very hard on the Wisconsin case, uh, the Frank versus Walker uh, case there. Um, we've been working on that one for years, actually, and it is still not fully resolved, although there have that you know some of the Wisconsin law, which is bad, has been um, at least partially rolled back, and you know there's still going to be you know further uh, you know appeals and, and action on that case. Uh, but this is the first presidential election since the Supreme Court struck down those parts of the Voting Rights Act, and so we're really going to see the implications of it um, in this election. You know, the probably the biggest thing that's been used to um, suppress the vote and particularly to suppress African-American vote is the, um, the use of these voter ID laws. Um, right. although they, as they pointed out, it's not the only thing. Um, and there are studies that have shown that, um, and according to the Advancement Project, for example, um, this is a few years ago, but it's still pretty accurate, um, that they found that about 11% of voters nationally don't have up-to-date state-issued photo ID. That's tens of millions of people. Right. And the percentages are higher for some subgroups. Young voters, uh, 18 to 29, 20% don't have that type of ID. And among black voters, it's 25%. So if you use that as a, as a criterion, you're going to disproportionately affect who can vote and who can't. And as, as the judge found in the North Carolina case, that law was targeted at African-American voters, as they said, with almost surgical precision. I mean, when you say surgical precision, it doesn't get more detailed and premeditated than that. I mean, what, you got to be a sick person to be able to implement this thing that precise. That, that's a, that is uncomprehendable to me. And Nathan, I mean... I have a question, and, you know, it's, I guess the answer is obvious. Um, <laughs> the answer is troubling, uh, you know, because, because this, is, this is just blatant racism, that these, these laws, I mean, this isn't, hey, you know, let's, let, let's take a lynch mob and, you know, let's go out and let's, let's go after this one guy in the middle of the night and nobody knows we're there. These are laws being laid down that, hey, let, uh, let's target this specific group and say we're going to keep them from voting. But my question, let's look at the other side. How, how is it that you say, okay, in this jurisdiction, you know who they're targeting. They're targeting the African-American community. The African-American community is big enough to sway the vote there locally, and yet what is uh, – I mean, where, where are the voters that say, you know, we are going to ensure – that this gets shot down. So it never, I mean, this, this really never should have made it to the Supreme court because it should have been shot down locally. So in, in your opinion, from your perspective, from the ACLU's view, how is it that these laws get past the people that they affect? So, so broadly, I mean, are they using, are they using the basis of these laws to ensure that the vote against these laws are not made? Well, there is a little bit of a 
circular you know cause and effect there i mean there it, because the solution if 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 really if everybody voted if everyone voted we would almost certainly have people representing us who wouldn't pass these types of laws so you know not everyone votes you get people in who don't really represent where everyone is then they pass laws to make sure that people can't vote so that they're able to perpetuate the, the same kinds of policies. Um, for many people, I think it's seen as almost a kind of political game rather than really the essence of democracy. No, absolutely, Nathan. And I'll tell you what, uh, this is troubling. You know, and, and again, I think you bring a, a clear perspective to it. Tell us, Nathan, a little bit more about what got you involved with wanting to go out and address this issue? I know ACLU deals with deals with a lot. Uh, and the, before we go there, William had a comment, but I want to get to. I want you to think about that, and we're going to talk about what got you involved, what drives you, and and what pushed you to say, "Look, wait a minute, we have to stand up and do something." We'll get to that in a moment. Well, William, your thoughts? Well, I, I just I just had a question for Nathan. I I was reading here, and, I, and based on the comment that you made, you said we, you know, our country has fought for you know for this for a while and it's gone around and around i just want to get your take on what we're seeing today with voter suppression and how that may be different or the same as the original jim crow laws that were there implemented in the south to sway and uh and deter votes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh i think there are things that they may not all be identical um I mean, there were explicit poll taxes and and tests and things like that designed to keep people from voting at that time. Um, some of those, you know, are, are are still not allowed under, you know, for example, some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act that weren't struck down. Um, but you still see all sorts of tools being used to keep people from voting now. Um, one aspect of it that I, I just I have to name, and it relates to other work that we do at the ACLU. We do a lot of work on criminal justice reform. And one of the effects of mass incarceration in this country, uh, and Michelle Alexander has written about this in her book, The New Jim Crow. There are, there are other places that you can read about this. But one of the effects of that is also voter disenfranchisement. Yes. In most states in this country, unless you're in Vermont or Maine, where you can actually vote even if you're in prison, um, unless you're in one of those two states, when you're incarcerated, you generally can't vote. Um, there are some exceptions to that. I mean, even here in Colorado, if you are in jail on a misdemeanor, you should be able to vote. And there are efforts that, sh- that should make that possible. There are some states like uh, Iowa, for example, where if you, are, if you have a felony, you never get to vote again for the rest of your life. Um, there, you know, f- I think felon disenfranchisement in Florida played a really critical role in some of our past presidential elections. Um, it, it, the, the way the criminal justice system, which of course also falls heavily disproportionately on uh, our minority populations, those also serve as a form of voter suppression as well. Let me ask you a question, Nathan. Uh, I'll tell you what. And this is now, say, for instance, if I'm sitting in county jail on a felony charge in county Mm -hmm. and I'm in there on November 8th, can I vote? You should be able to. If you're just awaiting trial, if it's just a charge, you should still be able to vote. Yes. And I'll I'll tell you what, uh, I was wrongfully convicted in this state. 
wrongfully. Mm-hmm. I've been totally exonerated after seven years in the state uh, uh, system. And I'll tell you what, I don't remember one time in November, uh, whether it was an election, and believe me, it was, I was in doing some election, whether it's state, city, whatever it is, I don't remember an inmate ever being told that you could vote or educating inmates. Look, you've been presumed innocent. If I'm in county jail and I can't make bond, I am still innocent. There that should be correct. no type of restriction on voting. But here's, here's my thought, Nathan. No one educated us when we came in there. Oh, by the way, you can vote. No one. I wonder, is that something that's done on purpose? Because there's a lot of people, and there's some big county jails across this country that hold a lot of people, and you know what? A lot of votes. Why then are we, well, are they not, you may not be able to answer that, but doesn't that raise a serious question? Well, I, I do think that one of the functions, and I, I would not at all be surprised if in some places, in some ways, it's intentional um, that we, we do incarcerate as many people as we do. It has that effect of, of um, disenfranchising votes. And even when people have the right to vote, people who are you know, awaiting trial, who are jailed um, before trial, who are, um, uh, you know, in a penitentiary on a misdemeanor, or, you know, people who have served their time um, should be able to vote, but they don't always know that they can. Um, really, it's my own belief that unless you lose your citizenship, which you don't lose when you go into prison, why should you lose your right to vote? We should be like Maine, and we should be like Vermont and places that, I mean, you should be able to vote no matter what, even if you are in prison, and then it takes away that incentive to use the criminal justice system as a way of, of disenfranchising votes. And that's a real sick situation because here's the thought, and I said this before, and I'll say it again. This, this doesn't even go to the people who are wrongfully convicted, which I was. But I t- say use this analogy all the time. If I have a J.C. Penney charge card and I rack up a bill for $3,000, mm-hmm. once I pay that bill, look, it's Christmas. I need to go shopping. J.C. Penney, when I get to the counter to, to pay, they're not going to say, well, you remember last three months ago you owed a bill for $3,000. They're going to gladly say, hello, Mr. Banks. How are you? Thank you for your purchase. Why then, if a person has paid their debt to – see, we want to doubly, double charge people. We want to double punish people. So not only do we want to give you a felony and put you in prison, okay, say you're guilty. I wasn't free for the last seven years or that whatever, got, whatever sentence a person may have. They did the time. When you walk out of right. that prison, I should have every right to employment, to a, a, a home, to whatever it is, is afforded to any other citizen in this country. And the fact well, that absolutely. Said, right? Am I, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense, but that's not the real world here that we live in. No, it's, I mean, we use the phrase collateral consequences to talk about that. that there's all sorts of things that happen. When, once, uh, once somebody gets into the criminal justice system, you have consequences the rest of your life, and whether you deserve it or not. It does, and, and, and the point is voting really shouldn't be one of those things. Right. That's really not one of those things that should be affected, and it certainly shouldn't be after you're out. I mean, people who are out on parole should be able to vote. We very strong – at the very least, we support parolee voting rights, if not uh, at least um, voting rights for even for people who are currently um, incarcerated. And 
and and the, people need to know. Like you said, if if you don't know, how are you going to know? And I'm hoping that. The, I'm glad you're doing something like this radio program, for example, because um, it's difficult to get the word out about you know who can vote. We have pretty good voting laws um, in Colorado, although there are things I would still want to have reformed here. Uh, but people need to know those laws. They need to know how to use it. Um, there was a 2013 Colorado Voter Access and Modernized Elections Act, and it allowed for things like same-day registration. If you're not registered to vote, you can go in to a voter service and polling center and register and vote in the same day. Um, if Everyone who is a registered voter um, should, will get mail ballots now, ballots, uh, uh, mail-in ballots that you can um, either mail back in, although you have to put postage on it, which is another thing I would like to change because I think that's a, like a small poll tax. Um, but you don't have to mail it. You can put it in a drop box, which there are in every county, um, and you can also vote in person, uh, both uh, early voting um, and then also, of course, on November 8th, the polls are, are, are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Uh, but there have been – you know, voter ID laws are the most – obvious and egregious examples of voter suppression that's happening nationally. Uh, most voter suppression happens in the name of trying to fight so-called voter fraud, which is right. almost non-existent. I mean, you can count a handful of cases, I individual cases, of, of people trying to vote twice or that sort of thing. It almost never happens. There are very, very serious penalties for voter fraud, and almost no one is going to face those kinds of penalties for the sake of one vote. And so it no, almost never happens. No, absolutely. But in the name of, in the name of trying to promote voter fraud, they do voter suppression that, that gets rid of millions of votes. And right. that's the problem. And you know what, Nate, uh, speaking about that and also going back to the uh, those who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated or out, you know, it, it just kind of seems obvious to me that if you pay a tax in America, you should be able to vote on how those taxes are exacted against you, whether you're a felon or you aren't registered. I mean, same day registration, that that seems like a no brainer. It's like, hey, I'm, I, I paid my taxes this year. I got an address. I want to vote. These are the type of things that you say, OK, the 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 amount of, um, you know, the. Well, I guess the level of be, of the in, uninformed is what really causes people to 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 have their rights, uh, you know, just slapped out of their hand. Because when you're informed of these things and you you take like a common sense, think like, hey, I voted, I paid my taxes, I I demand that you allow me to vote because I my vote represents how I want to be taxed in America. And and those are the type of things, the the reasons that we say, you know. People get out to the polls. You have to make your voice heard, uh, you know, when you can, because there are people who are disenfranchised from their vote and don't even know how they even got to that to that to that place in their life. Right. And 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 Nathan, I want to give you some some statistics. It says in the United States today, thirteen percent of all black men are denied the right to vote because they have been convicted of a felony. Felon dis, uh, disfranchisement, as this phenomenon is called, is a stain on our democracy left by laws intended at their inception to prevent newly freed slaves from participating in the political process. 
black people, just 12% of the U.S. population, comprise 38%. Those denied their voting rights because of a felony conviction. That is huge numbers and implications that affect an election. Especially it is election. huge. Go ahead. It's huge, and it has changed some of our elections already. We know that. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a huge problem. Um, I mean, you should know if you're in, in many states, including in Colorado, um, you can, once you are um, out after having um, served time for a felony, you can register to vote again. There are some places you never can. Uh, but felon disenfranchisement overall is a huge problem. And in any type of disenfranchisement, frankly, through the criminal justice system, I think is a problem. And I, I do believe it has racist origins. Well, absolutely. And, and you know what? That's the conversation that people don't want to have, but we're having it uh, because it is self-evident in this election uh, in what lies ahead in 49 days uh, in, in America as we select a new president. Uh, Nathan, do you have a few more minutes to spend with us on the other side of this break? Sure. Okay, we won't keep you long, uh, but we want to get some closing thoughts on how we can how we can better the system. What can we do as a community? Uh, how can folks support what you do? I want you to answer the question in regards that I said. What prompted you to do what you're doing today? And the passion that drives you in this issue, on this issue, we'll get a little bit of your thoughts on that, and then we'll let you enjoy the rest of your evening. We appreciate you joining us. Ladies and gentlemen of America, if you want to join in on the conversation, feel free to call 319-527-6216. That's 319-527-6216. As tonight, we tackle a, a very pressing issue that has huge ramifications as November 8th looms in the future. It's election time, and America needs to get the vote out. We're coming back on the other side of this break with our very, very special guest, who we're honored to have, Nathan Woodliffe, Executive Director of ACLU Colorado. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. Ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of AJC Radio and a campaign that we have started that is underway entitled Spotlight on Capitol Hill. This program is new to AJC Radio, but it is an exciting time when we take a few moments every Thursday evening to highlight members of Congress, their initiatives that are not only important to them, their constituents, and the nation as a whole. We invite you every Thursday to tune in to AJC Radio to hear your congressman or your senator and their initiatives that are here to shape a nation and to bring about change. We invite you cordially, and as we fight for justice, as we seek justice daily, we'll come together as not only the American people. Join us every Thursday for Spotlight on Capitol Hill. God bless you, and as always, God bless America. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? 
a new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Hey guys, I'm Jordan Sparks. I'm Chase Crawford. Hey, what's up? It's Usher. Hi, I'm Rachel Dawson. I'm Hayden Christensen. I'm Peyton Manning. Hey, we're Fall Out Boy. I'm Jared Archuleta. I'm Corbin Blue. I'm Kristen Bell. And we're the Jonas Brothers. Do something good for your community. Reuse bags and bottles and always recycle. Help us collect a million pounds of food. Help people prepare for natural disasters. 
Do something about homelessness. Anyone could be a rock star in their community. So then do something. Do something. Do something. Do something. Visit dosomething.org to find out how. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested. Held in custody. Questioned without my knowledge. Exposed to violence. Witnessed to rape. Placed in solitary confinement. Unable to call or see me. Shackled to a wall. Beaten. Sentenced as an adult at age 17. Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we We have have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We we can can make make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you were the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We're coming live from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Temperature probably down about the mid-70s here on a fall, uh, close to fall evening, as we have been privileged and honored to have Nathan Wood- Woodliff Stanley, the executive director of the ACLU for Colorado. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you right now, if you're looking for information uh, that is important to us as we proceed forward in the most important election facing a nation. I'll tell you what, uh, Nathan has his stuff together. We appreciate him joining us tonight. Nathan, thank you for coming back, being with us on this program. Glad to. All right, Nathan, and I want to give you an opportunity very quickly to, and we're going to uh, get this and get your closing thoughts uh, on, uh, you know, the uh, issue that drove you to work this issue. You seem very passionate about it. Uh, that and, and I, I hear, you know, your passion and the importance of this. What got you involved to say this is something that we need to champion and take on? Well, in the process of working at the ACLU, we see so many things that go on, particularly in the criminal justice system. We see the uh, the, the racially biased policing. We see the um, you know the, the many black men and people of color who've even died at the at the hands of law enforcement. We've also seen um, all of the issues that happen in the criminal justice system and um, in our fighting for justice in that we understand that all of this happens in the context of the laws that are passed and the court decisions that um, that interpret those laws and those all depend upon elections so it really does come back to uh, to voting and to the right to vote and then to using that right to vote Um, and more than anything you know, if there's if there's a, a message that I want to um, leave everybody with, it's that if you if you can vote, you should vote in this election, and particularly if you're here in Colorado, um, and vote 
the whole ballot. Don't just vote part of it. The you know the presidential election is expected to be very close right now, and Colorado is shaping up to be one of the key swing states in that. Who gets elected determines who gets appointed to the Supreme Court, which will then in turn determine our rights for generations to come. It's a, it's, it's a really critical thing. Um, if you have any question about voting, I, you know, there the number of places you can go. We work with a lot of, of – the ACLU works with other partners like um, Mi, Mi Familia Vota, uh, Colorado Common Cause, um, Let My People Vote, a lot of other organizations. Um, you can go to www.justvotecolorado.org. That's www.justvotecolorado.org if you want to find information about voting. You can register at a um, at uh, www dot govotecolorado.com. Um, if you see problems, and there are problems that happen, there are things like, and sometimes this happens right before an election, you'll get false or misleading flyers or messages or calls or warnings that say, you know, that, that threaten you um, about voting or that give false information saying, oh, the election place or location or time has been changed or things like that to try to throw people off. Um, don't be misled by things like that if you, if you get them. Um, Turn to reliable sources of information like these organizations. Um, if you, you know, see things that concern you, you can also, after um, October 17th, call 866-OUR-VOTE, 866-OUR-VOTE. It's the uh, number for the um, National Election Protection Organization. Um, but above all, get out there and vote. Um, it is a really important election, and ironically, one of the things that is at stake in whether we vote or not is our voting rights in the future, and that determines all sorts of other things as well. So um, thank you so much for, uh, for having me on here, and I certainly am glad that you are doing what you're doing and, and um, discussing these issues because they're very important. Well, Nathan, we're going to definitely have you back after the election uh, now, we're going to be, uh, of course, uh, as of November 1st, people get in the holiday swing of things. But after the first of the year, we're going to talk about how that election was affected, uh, how the voting. And I would just like to get your thoughts on the post-election uh, viewpoint, of, if, if you wouldn't mind coming back and joining us as we discuss those issues. And again, the implications that are in place here are, are huge. Uh, understand we want to thank you uh, for, your, for your commitment in working. I understand that uh, you've been active in the Black Lives Matter movement in Denver for the past two years. Uh, appreciate your That's work uh, in that. Uh, we salute you for everything that you're doing, Nathan. Uh, hats off to you. You have a friend and an ally, if you will, here at AJC Radio and at Just Cause. Uh, we believe in what you're doing, and hopefully together we can bring, uh, hopefully institute change in this country. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Have a good rest of the night. You too. All right. Take care. And I'll tell you what, folks, uh, there you have it. Nathan Woodliffe Stanley uh, doing some things, uh, getting out. I'm, when I tell you he's tackling issues here, uh, I'll tell you what, that are huge. And it's, it's really respectable uh, uh, that he's doing what he's doing, uh, Dennis. And, and to be involved with, sh- with such a cause uh, is, is pretty big. Yeah, it's just truly commendable. I mean, I truly enjoyed listening to him as he spoke in reference to uh, pretty much pushing the issue. Get out there and vote. I mean, whatever it takes, uh, we got to get out there and vote. Every vote counts, uh, no matter what anyone says. And then to 
uh, actively get out there and make sure that uh, the vote of the minority is not suppressed. I mean, that's a that's a big issue. You know, a lot of people won't go that route. Uh, they hey, let let it let it fall away, it fall. But uh, it's truly commendable what uh, Nathan is doing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, he's and he's calling. It is. It what is it what is. it is, exactly. and he's exactly. not—he's not backing away from that. Uh, doing some great things, and I mean the fact that people would take the time to set out on a telemarketing campaign and say, "Oh, by the way, we're calling you out of a courtesy. Uh, the, the voting precinct has changed. You'll be going about 20 minutes away from your normal precinct, uh, only to find the precinct doesn't exist." And see, those are the type that of is- things that you know you. You uh, and and you know we chuckle, but it, it it's not funny, but it is hilarious to a point because how do you you do, do you know what it's what it takes to set up a dialing campaign to to lay this out, and it it is all uh, against the law and to 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 suppress votes, and that that's why you have to commend uh you know Nathan and you have to commend the ACLU for for taking this on you know. <clears throat> as they take on other controversial things, but uh, it just shows that, you know, someone has to do it. And, and, and you know, you don't really want to call it, you know, dirty work, but this is getting them the trenches. This is saying we are digging in. We are going after those who are trying to, uh, you know, disenfranchise voters. That is, I, I mean, you, there, there's not many other things that are worse than that than to try to take away, especially the African-American vote, because of the things that had to be done. The people who died, the, uh, you know, just the fight that went in to get the, the Get the Voters Act passed in the 60s. And then to now say, you know, we're, we're still fighting this. The, the, the minority vote is still, uh, you know, trying to be suppressed by certain individuals. It is. Like I said before, you know, it's, it's disgraceful, it's shameful to America as a, as a country, but you have to come in and, and like, uh, you know, like I say, you have to salute those like Nathan uh, who are out there saying, you know what, we're going to expose those who are doing this, and then we're going to help those who don't really know that it's happening to them. And, and when you do those two things, I mean, people come after you. It's not like the ones who are trying to suppress this vote. Is just going to sit back and say, okay, well, hey, 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 Nathan, you know, since since you guys called us, we're just going to be quiet. Oh no, guaranteed, he's hit some controversy along the way, and uh, you know, probably have have heard has been called some phrases that uh, he'd rather not have. But uh, we 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 really are hats off to you, Nathan, and uh, the work that you guys are doing there up in Denver and for the state of Colorado, we certainly appreciate. It. No, absolutely, and uh, I'll tell you right now. Uh, and some more stats our research team has forwarded to us. This is amazing. In California prisons, three of every four men are either African-American, Latino, or Asian-American. Uh, African-Americans who comprise less than 7% of California's voting age population represent 28% of those who cannot vote because of felon disenfranchisement. Wow, that is uh, – when you, you think about – listen. And, and Cliff, not to interrupt you, that's the number with all of the uh, minority groups. But then you have the, the previous poll, uh, uh, or excuse me, research that was found just on African Americans comprised 38 percent of those denied uh, their voting rights because of a felony conviction. Right. You're talking about now. This is this, I'm going to go out on a real limb here. <laughs> that do is our incarceration level at the level that it's at? That we lock up so many African Americans. So many minorities 
and refuse to bring prison reform to the level that it should be, and the problem being that it has been for a while, would something have, that have anything to do with a agenda of how to suppress the vote? Well, I mean, look at this. I mean, think of that. 28%. Let's just go ahead and call that 30%. You know, African Americans make up 28% of those who cannot vote. So you're saying a third of the people who cannot vote are African Americans. You can sway an election with 30% of the vote. And would that have anything to do with maybe why uh, some members, not all members of Congress, because we have, we've met some great ones, uh, why they sit on their hands re- uh, refusing to implement change that will do a mass release of African Americans back into the community and minorities? Would it have anything to do with the fact? I mean, justice reform is, is humongous. Yeah. I mean, and and uh, you're right. I mean, Nathan even hit on that, you know, as, as far as uh, uh, disenfranchising but, uh, but we, uh, the black American. And that's by you got so many in you got so many in prison and you think these numbers are, are to, you know, to, to they're actually uh, for you. If, if, if you keep them in prison. That's less votes that's, that's out that there. The other, to, that the other that person the other, can yeah, get. Exactly. That, now, look, that sounds horrible. But when, you're but, talking about, but when you're talking about starting campaigns to call people and to manipulate an election, which it's very difficult to do if the vote is out. But it's the right, fact right. that it's even being done and the exposure of that now, it raises high questions why state legislators refuse to change their laws. But see, uh, that maybe those voters can get them back in office or get them out of office, whatever right, right. the case is. This is this is the thing. I mean, we're talking about felony, okay, felony convictions. Now, so this is the thing I keep ringing out to me. What about them do, means that they are not allowed to vote? But besides the fact that you just implement laws, they are human beings. They are citizens of the United States. They inevitably will have children or relatives that will be impacted by someone that is elected. Our justice you, system don't look at but it. But like you that. don't. I, I know, and it's it's the stupidest thing. So in other words, you commit a felony, you don't have the right to vote. You are subject to to whoever is there. You mean so so you know Donald Trump gets elected. <laughs> you don't get to. You don't get to. You know, have your vote. You don't get to well, let well, your voice be heard. Well, look, the issue is, is that uh, this, these are just one of the things that we have to look at. But this is, again, as Nathan alluded to, has been an ongoing problem for years. Uh, and for the life of me, I cannot wrap my hands around the Supreme Court of the United States. Wow. As, as the news reporter stated, gutted the voting rights of 1965. How did the Supreme Court come along and just do that? Uh, that's, that's, that's amazing. Uh, we're going to go into the, some issues in Ohio. You know very well that o- Ohio is a major state uh, that no Republican has ever been elected to the presidency without winning Ohio. Let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in Ohio with voter issues, if you will, that disenfranchise the African-American community. <laughs> Welcome back to The Ed Show. There are new developments tonight in the Republicans' effort to stop Americans from voting in the next election in November. Now, this weekend, Ohio's Secretary of State decided to shorten, 
shorten voting hours in all 88 counties in the state of Ohio. Now one of his fellow Republicans is coming clean about the real reason they're suppressing the vote. It's in Franklin County. Franklin County's Republican Election Commissioner Doug Price wrote this in an email to the newspaper, the Columbus Dispatch. He wrote, we shouldn't contort the voting process to accommodate the urban read African-American voter turnout machine. Those are his words, according to the Columbus Dispatch. Urban read African-American. When the reporter asked the commissioner Price if that's unfair, he used a word we can't say on the air or broadcast. Price told the paper, quote me. You can quote me on that. Cursing doesn't change the fact that cutting poll hours is unfair to working families and working Americans. Here's why. There's new research out this weekend that shows just how many people depend on expanded voting hours. For instance, in the last election, 47% of Ohioans cast ballots during non-business hours. Voters cast almost 200,000 ballots during the exact days and hours the Republicans are eliminating this year. That's more than 3% in a state where elections get decided by 2% margin of victory. Well, two Democrats who voted for early hours, they have been suspended from the election board. Supporters held a rally today for Tom Ritchie and senior Dennis Lieberman. Well, Secretary of State John Husted ordered them to rescind their support for early voting. They refused. They've got an attorney, and they'll find out later this week if they're going to be able to keep their jobs. Well, there you have it. Uh, how do you order people? I order you to rescind your vote. Vote different. I order you to change your vote. You voted yes on this one issue. Oh. I order you to vote no. Well, what how the, do you do that? But what they voted was for fairness. Yes. To not block 200,000 votes. You're saying the 200,000 people... Your vote doesn't count because you're African-American, and he bragged about it. And when they asked the commissioner, did you mean what you said? Quote me on that. Wow. He said, we don't need to, uh, in other words, rive up the urban black vote machine, if you will. We don't need to do anything with that. Uh, when you think about that number, and now they were fired from their job because, they believed in democracy and fairness to all people to vote. The state of Ohio, how is that even possibly legal? And you ordered them to res- what, what? Where are you living at? Yeah, what? What year, decade, century, millennia do you think that you are actually living in? You order me to change my vote, and you quote me on that. And where's the where's the federal intervention? Yeah, I mean, come on. This, I mean, there's insane. got to be. Where, but where is where is the governor? You know what I'm <laughs> wow. saying? Where is the exactly. governor that comes in and say, you know what? It, even the mayor that says you you are you have stepped way outside your bounds. They're not being put on administrative leave because of insubordination. You're fired. Wow. For your racism, for your. Uh, just for your your lack of of being able of doing your job right, this, this is sick. That's why it's so important that we get out 
and that vote. Is it because that is the only way. You That's got a commissioner way. who was voted in. Right, right. The, the people voted him, gave him his job. And he's sitting there saying, that's right. Basically, he's saying, that's right. We don't need no black vote. And I don't care that you say that I said it. Quote me that we don't need to ask for the, uh, the black vote. I don't I mean, care. We don't it's need not we that don't we don't need it. We don't want it. Right. We don't well, need for him anyway. So, you know, he, that's probably why he doesn't <laughs> And want that's it. why they need to come out in droves and say, we voting this fool That's out. right. Well, we listen, are voting him out. Listen to this story. Critics see efforts by counties and towns to purge minority voters from the rolls. This comes out of Sparta, Georgia. A uh, story written by Michael Wines states this, and this is July 31st of this year. It says, when Deputy Sheriff Patrol Cruiser pulled up beside him as he walked down Broad Street at sunset last August, Marty, Marty Flournoy, a 32-year-old black man, was both confused and rattled. And he had reason. In this corner of a rural Georgia, African-Americans are arrested at a rate far higher than that of whites. But the deputy had not come to arrest uh, Mr. Flannoy. Rather, he came to challenge his right to vote. The majority white Hancock County Board of Elections and Registration was systematically questioning the registrations of more than 180 black Sparta citizens, a fifth of the city's registered voters, by dispatching deputies with summons commanding them to appear in person to prove their residence or lose their voting rights. When I read that letter, I was kind of nervous. Uh, Mr. Flannoy said in an interview, I didn't know what to do. The board's aim, a lawsuit letter claim, was to give an edge to white candidates in Sparta's municipal elections, and that November, a white mayoral candidate won a narrow victory. A lot of those people who were challenged probably didn't vote, even though they weren't proven to be wrong. Uh, said Marion Warren, a Sparta elections official who documented the purges and raised an alarm with voting rights advocates. People just do not understand why a sheriff's coming to their house to bring them a subpoena, especially if they haven't committed any crime. The county attorney, Barry A. Fleming, a Republican state representative, said in an interview that the elections board was only trying to restore order to the electoral process tainted earlier by corruption and incompetence. The lawsuit is overblown, he suggested, because only a fraction of the targeted voters were ultimately scratched from the rolls. But here's the problem. If you pull somebody, just understand this. If you pull that African-American over and say, you have to appear, it looks like you're not eligible to vote, and you have to appear in court to fight that. Well, guess what? They may not show up in court. They think, I'll just forget it. I won't vote there because they don't want to be bothered. Maybe they don't have transportation. So it's, a outside, it's an outside attempt. And like he said, they're scratched from the rolls, and they're thinking, well, I'm, if I don't show up, I can't vote, but I'm not going to the court. I don't have time. I can't miss a day off work or whatever. So you know what? I just won't go vote. Wow. But that is a threat. You're telling That's what me, it is. You're telling me show up in court. Well, what did I do? You got to prove that, that, you you are registered. that you're a registered voter. <laughs> you, you not only have to prove that you can vote, but you have to prove that you're a resident. Do you know the type of questions will go through a person's mind? First off, okay, if I've never been in trouble with, with the law, suddenly I'm getting subpoenaed to go to court, and you're telling me I have to approve my residence. Are you, are you saying you're about to take my house? Are you saying you're about to put – you're running me out of town if I can't prove that I live here? This goes so far further than – uh, the vote. This is this is insane. And I was wrong on the number going to the Alabama when you said they moved last year to close 19 driver license offices. They moved to close 31 wow. driver's license offices almost in all 
rural areas with large African-American populations as a cost-saving measure. (laughs) After lawsuit threats and complaints that the closing would severely curtail local voter registration, the state chose to open the offices at least one day a month. Governor Robert J. Brantley, a Republican, has strongly denied that the closing were, were, were racially motivated. No so way. 31. So then what was the motivation? See, somebody needs to ask him, what was your motivation if it wasn't, well, we're just trying to save some money. You are save some money liar. But check this out. The point here was one thing. If we close the, the driver's license offices, there's a lot of people that have a hardship. That's why when you get ready to vote, they'll try to put you to the closest voting precinct near your address. I got a thing in the mail saying, hey, you can vote here. This is about, what, five, ten minutes from my house. That's the purpose, to make it as easy as possible that everybody have no hardship. Some people people walk to vote because they don't have transportation or they don't have time to wait for They say, okay, well, if it's five minutes away, you know, a few blocks, I can walk down there and then walk back home. But now you're going to tell me instead of it being five blocks, now it's 25 blocks that I have to walk, so I'm taking three hours out of my day to go vote where it should have been uh, 20 minutes. But it also says the state chose to open the offices at least one day a month. A month. What kind wow. of foolishness is that? that a month? Be- one day a month. Well, in November, Good November, 8th, November 8th is the election. <laughs> We're going to open up on November 27th. Oh, I'm yeah. sure it's not publicized. It's, it's not like, you know, they sent a mass letter to everybody. No, it's, it's, gonna it's, be it's open. probably on the door. You know, it's probably on the door. So you you struggled to get down there. I think the thing that really bothers me about this is that, you know, this is rural country. I mean, it's not like you're, you know, it's big city. So, you know, transportation is a thing. You don't have cabs, you know, in some of these places. Uh, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. So, you know, a, a cab, we didn't know what that was. But, you know, I mean, so you're really going to struggle. I mean, that's the whole thing. You struggle to get to and from work. You struggle to do, you know, things. And, and so when you must make it difficult, are you closed down, you know, shop at five o'clock? Well, you know, that just makes it difficult for people. Well, let alone a cab fare. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 yeah, that's true. Bus, too. Uh, there are people that can't get on the bus. Uh, we used to call uh, it bus money. Uh, bus money. Uh, but it goes further here. It says a Republican majority in North Carolina's General Assembly, Assembly, excuse me, redrew the political districts last year in Wake County, whose main city is Raleigh, concentrating black voters in the city center into a single voting district. A three-judge panel of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit ruled that map unconstitutional. In Pasadena, Texas, officials eliminated voters, uh, excuse me, eliminated two district council seats in largely Hispanic areas in 2014 and replaced it with at-large seats chosen largely by white voters. Hispanic voters have filed a federal lawsuit seeking to undo the change. In Macon, Bibb County, Georgia, in February, the elections board moved a polling place in a predominantly black neighborhood from a gymnasium that was being renovated to the county sheriff's office. Officials changed the location to a church after a petition drive legally forced a reversal. I cannot believe the steps and the actions that people are taking to siphon the votes of African Americans. We're talking Texas, Georgia, predominantly Republican. Black Votes Matters. And in every story that we have told tonight, 
they have said it is predominantly black neighborhoods, rural areas, people that may. And, and you know what? The poor in this country have a right to vote. They have a right to say who's in the White House. It may address the homeless problem in this country for those that may have fallen upon hard times and are homeless. These who are being disenfranchised are the minorities and the poor, as if they don't count. And you wonder when you read this stuff and you report on this stuff, what this goes to the tone of a nation that is racially divided. So when you get on a TV screen and say, hey, all people count, Black Lives Matter. Why are people talking about Black Lives Matter? They apparently do not. Because in every step we see, down to the 40-year-old that was killed with his hands up yesterday, down to uh, politicians closing precincts so African Americans cannot let their voice be heard, down to every act of bigotry that takes us back before the 1965 Voter uh, Rights Act. We are in a terrible position as a country. And we can look in the mirror and say every day, oh, no, we're not that bad. We are more than that bad. Well, you know, I, I just want to add here. The, the whole thing, this is not new. I mean, this is really not new. This is a perpetual you know, cycle of just trying to suppress Minority votes and control, you know, these districts and areas control seats, not allow African-Americans and minorities to hold positions. They continue to do this. I mean, if you look at just the Jim Crow law itself, you look at the history of that. I mean, that was back in 1865 or so. It's still the same thing today. You know, when they would, when they were actually talking about they talked about tens of thousands of blacks and poor being disenfranchised by, you know, southern states because, you know, all of a sudden a black uh, African-American or minority Latino, whatever, ended up in a in a position of power. It was elected in. So then they started this whole manipulation that, no, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore. We're not going to allow this to continue. So this has gone on a while. And here we are again today in these states that have. You know, large populations of African-Americans, minorities that are out here that are letting their voices be heard. They're 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 and they're out there trying to vote. They're they're there taking control of their future, their family's future by saying, listen, I have a right to vote. I'm going to elect somebody. I'm going to choose somebody on this ballot. But now you're saying, OK, you can't because you don't have an I.D. or a up to date I.D. State identification well, oh, You know and it's, it's ridiculous well, That we're continuing this fight Well I think the conspiracy uh, Goes on ladies and gentlemen we're coming back with this discussion As shortly we'll be getting Going into the RP6 What you didn't know but we're coming back with a little bit more Information on this problem in America We're going to hear from President Obama Who actually spoke About the importance Of protecting voter rights in America We're coming back on the other side of the break This is AJC Radio where we bring the message of justice all around the world. We'll be right back on the other side of the break. I don't have to tell you about the challenges we face every day. That would be like preaching to the choir. Yeah. Today you have a chance to face the challenge of your risk for diabetes. My dad had diabetes, and one in four U.S. adults are at risk, myself included. 
if you're older than 45 or African-American, that risk increases. So here's a chance to ask yourself, what can I do? Talk to your doctor about getting screened and know what your options are. Learn more at AskScreenKnow.com. You must have thrown a thousand pitches teaching him to hit a home run. Spent countless Saturdays running routes so he could learn to hit an open receiver. Endless afternoons teaching him how to hit the three-pointer. But how much time have you spent teaching him what not to hit? Teaching boys that all violence against women is wrong is one of the most important things a man can do. Learn how to start the conversation at teachearly.org. Brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the Ad Council. I wanted to be in the military since I was was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody. It'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Good morning, students, and welcome to Career Day. I hope you're excited to hear about all the great things you can do when you grow up. Hi, everyone. I'm Emily. I'm super excited to introduce my dad because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot, but I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he tells all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission.
And welcome back in, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, where we're discussing a very important issue tonight, and that is voter suppression uh, and the conspiracy of that. But it ceases to just be a conspiracy uh, theory, if you will. But these are actual facts uh, of issues and stats that we've read tonight to disenfranchise African-American voters, minority voters. And this is something that is taking shape, ironically, 49 days before the November presidential election. And when you think about that, Dennis, I'll tell you what, it stinks all the way up. Yes, it does. And that's why I'm sure people are getting tired of me saying uh, the, the way to beat voter uh, suppression is to get out there and do whatever it takes to make your, uh, your, your voice heard. And how do you do that? You vote and you vote and you vote. You just do what you got to do. I mean, if whatever they try to, to do to block uh, the minority from voting, uh, we, we got to fight. We got to make sure our voices are heard because that's how we're going to make a lot of this get changed. Well, we were just talking on the break uh, regarding those rural areas, William. You're from uh, uh, deep down there in North Carolina uh, and, and coming up in some very rural areas uh, and talking about the number of people. And, and now that you – when you talk about rural areas, you're talking – North Carolina is a huge farm – Farming population, I believe. Right. Is that correct? Right. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's farming area. So if, if you get away from that and you begin to take, make it a hardship, and that's what we talked about earlier, the hardship of we don't want it hard for people to vote. That's right. We want it as simple. If you want to pass laws, make it as simple as possible that every vote be heard. That, that's right. I mean, because, you know, we were talking during the break and I was sharing. I said, you know, when you grow up in these small areas, these towns are small. But, you know, most of the people live on the farm. They live, you know, they're on their family farm and they're there. So they don't necessarily live in the, in the you know, in the metropolitan areas, you know, quote unquote. So you're actually stifling a lot of people. You're making it hard for them that live on the farm, that are continuing their, their family business. Uh, you're making it hard for them. I mean, they're, they're struggling to get, you know, to the store. You know, that, that becomes an evolution, you know, at least for me when I was growing up. That was the evolution to get to the store or, you know, going to school. That's things you had to make arrangements for, you know, and, and plan for, work out rides and things like that. So, you know, when you're talking about 31 facilities that are being closed uh, in rural areas of Alabama, I mean, that's affecting a lot of people. And that's going to sway the vote or it's going to prohibit a lot of people from letting their voices be heard. So, uh, you know, and, and that's throughout the South. I mean, if you look at you look at throughout the South, people gravitate to, you know, the metropolitan areas are, you know, like Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Raleigh, Durham. But outside of that is still a huge population of people that have grew up in the rural areas. And so they're looking, you know, you're making it hard for them to vote. And that's it's, it's baffling to me. But then again. It's not because it, you, this has been a history. This is just another means to, to sway the vote or not allow minorities to be able to vote. You're going to make it hard for them. So, um, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to me that we're, we are fighting this still this day, um, years, uh, years. Yeah, this is, this is something this is that, uh, you know, and I'm grateful for, for, for the information uh, Nathan gave some huge insight uh, to what exactly how how hard this battle is, uh, and to keep it fair. And again, I understand uh, Cliff, as we were on Capitol Hill, we had talked to uh, Congressman Butterfield, 
uh, in that interview, he alluded to the fact of the, the suppression of trying to undo. I mean, when you try to go back and undo a civil rights uh, passage by a former president in 1965, uh, that, you understand now why Congressman Butterfield was outraged at this situation. And, and see, the thing is, when you already have the, the legislation has already been laid down and the law is already in place, then now you're not fighting for a law to get passed. You're fighting for the fact that there, uh, you know, these, these uh, ulterior motives and underlying factors that come up that you're not fighting against the law. Now you're fighting a ghost. You're fighting against a shadow. And it's like, okay, so how do we do this? That's where you got to get out. You get in the trenches and say, okay, we have to fight each, each precinct, every area where this is happening. That's where the fight has to take place because on the books, the law is on the books that everybody has the right to vote. But now you have these, you know, there's people who are circumventing the laws in an underhand way. And you have to go out and find those, find those areas where it's happening and then fight that fight, you know, face to face. And that is the difficulty of, uh, you know, basically of his, of his job as the chairman to say, we want to ensure that every minority has the right to vote. But you got to have people who are out there, you know, dug in. And watching and and basically patrolling to make sure that this type of suppression doesn't take place. No, absolutely, William. I, I wanted to read this if I could because I think this is this is I mean this is just a reflection of our history. Just real quick, it says between 1890 and 1910, ten of the eleven former Confederate states, starting with Mississippi, passed new constitution or amendments that effectively disenfranchised most blacks and tens of thousands of poor whites. Through a combination of poll taxes, literacy, comprehensive, and comprehensive tests, and it said basically by night by the 1900s, black votes, black voters in Louisiana were reduced to 5320, 5320 on the rolls. So you think about that. That was in the 1800s, 1890 to 1910. These same states, Confederate states, are were then manipulating and now. Well, hey, hey, listen, I'll tell you what, that's the, you know, we, hey, listen, we, t- we would take many shows to deal with this. Ladies and gentlemen, get out and vote. We'll be addressing that issue to Election Day. Get out and vote. Do not allow anybody to disenfranchise you as an African-American, a minority, or a regular, uh, you know, a Caucasian voter, whoever you are, white, black, red, or yellow. Get out and vote, and let's get the job done for on November 8th as we make important decisions in this country. Wanted to give a very special thanks to Nathan Woodliffe Stanley. Uh, for joining us tonight, giving us insight on this issue, and we could go days on this, and I'm sure this discussion, this definitely will not be the end of it. Right now, we turn our attention to a very important segment. You know what that is. Dave Zapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Gary Walker. What you didn't know about the RP6 happens right now. A just cause has found something very interesting. A playwright by Judge H. Lee Serrigan about the RMP6. It starts right now. Take a look. My name is David Binks, and I'm serving an 11-year sentence at the Federal Correctional Complex Prison Camp in Florence, Colorado. I've lost everything. My business, my money, my family, my future, my church, and my freedom. 
My name is Gary Walker, and I'm serving a sentence of 11 years in the same prison. Just to decide, not only were the six of us all devout members of the same church, there was not a single criminal charge or conviction among any of us for these unbelievable events unfolding. My name is Clinton Stewart, and I'm serving a sentence of 10 years at the same prison in Colorado. It's fitting that we live, prayed, and worked together that we should end up dying together, because that is what prison is for us and our families. I am Kendrick Barnes, and I am serving a seven-year sentence at the same prison in Colorado. I was the chief information officer at IRP Solutions, the name of our company. I testified. And then Gary objected. A Brooks broke out because Gary said our Fifth Amendment rights had been violated by compelling us to testify. The judge said she had not said anything of the kind, and we demanded the transcript. We were all absolutely unanimous in our verbatim version of what she had said. She denied production of the transcript for that day and at the time, some 200 pages, but assured us that they would be produced at the end of the day. Transcript of that particular conversation in the courtroom between us and the judge has never been produced. I am Demetrius Harper, and I'm serving a 10-year sentence at the same prison. And then in June of 2009, four years later, they finally got a grand jury to indict us. This time, they only called one witness an FBI agent. And the old adage that a prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich was proven. This is a production that sets the bar and takes a sincere look at the RP6 story. Judge H. Lee Serkin, retired federal judge, felt compelled to say something. We will not remain silent to see the full story, the full playwright of the RP6 tragedy Go to YouTube, search the race card. You don't want to miss it. Some people think that business is a game. And what we have learned is that business actually is war. They wanted people to sign non-disclosure agreements and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes they didn't want to do it. I think it's still strange. The bad food makes no sense. Is this really real? Is this happening? And then all of a sudden, the whole life is just apart. What we have learned is the RP6 story was supposed to be the American dream is an American nightmare. They were floored that uh, they were even being raided. It became very clear that the court-appointed attorneys were not working for the guys. Um, and it seemed like in many cases that they were uh, collaborating or working with the prosecution, we constantly hear in the news. Every week, you're going to hear about another person wrongfully convicted. And this is a unique case in the sense that you have six men, six businessmen that have been wrongfully convicted. You would think the media would jump all over it. 
justice is not fair anymore. They say justice is supposed to be blind. It's not blind. It's not blind. They pick and choose who they want to convict and who they want to convict. Is this happening in America? The American dream of the RP6 has turned into a nightmare, crying children left behind as a result of a corrupt system and corruption. We will seek and search for justice. We will ask the tough questions. We will demand answers as justice lays idle in the streets of America. We look for the answer. Ladies and gentlemen, go out to change.org, sign the petition now. America's future depends on it. Well, there you have it. What did you didn't know about the IRP6? Who are these gentlemen? Dave Zapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, and Gary Walker. And you want to know who these men are, look up in the dictionary and look for patriot and hero because these men are exactly that. They have developed software to keep the homeland safe. Tonight we shine the light on the critical part of setting these men free from a wrongful conviction and for a crime that they never committed as a result and as a matter of national security. We know very well as New York and New Jersey are the latest targets of terrorist attacks on this nation, every moment and every second counts, William, as we try to explain to the American people, to members of Congress, to the Department of Justice, to Homeland Security, the President of the United States, the critical reason why this clemency has to happen now. That's right. I mean, we're sitting here, again, faced with a situation. Uh, we have these attacks, major attacks. This, this gentleman here was Afghan-born, if I remember correctly, hearing correctly. He was a naturalized citizen. Um, his father, they came out and said that he had reported uh, some suspicious activity to some authorities. But you really have to sit here and say, how, ma- how many more attacks is it going to take? Well, not only some authorities. He called the FBI, FBI. Okay. All and right. stated that this man was a threat. Now, when a father of someone of that descent is calling and there's an issue, the FBI, again, Cliff, in my opinion, they dropped the ball here. Exactly. That's and, just unacceptable. Yeah, and, you know, uh, even Senator, Senator Feinstein of California today said, yes. yeah, that she agreed. The FBI dropped the ball because... This individual should have put, been put on some list. There should have been some type of connection that said, look, from the things his father said about him, the, the, uh, the, the things that he did, I mean, stabbing family members, I mean, that should raise the flag. Then your father says, you're a terrorist. They have video of him exploding bombs. These, this set of information should have been brought together. And when the FBI looked at it, they said, oh, well, you know, we don't see anything that, uh, that, that raises a red flag. I don't know how they dropped the ball on that. But then as, uh, as time went, went on, then you see this individual. And, and what gets me is that always in retrospect, they say, oh, well, when we bring all this information together and look at it, absolutely. We should have known this was happening. This guy, he was buying lead ball bearings online. He's, buying, he's yeah. buying different type of uh, things that could build explosives. When they put the list together, he got everything he needed off eBay. 
if he had been on a list, if they had collaborated all of this information, said, okay, we're getting this data from all these places, that and this this individual went to Afghanistan, he went to Pakistan, he's got uh, you know connections to these different places in in Taliban strongholds. This should have all kind of flags should have been flying on well, this individual, but the fact that they didn't have a system that could collaborate this information that the FBI could look at and say, you know what? We have this piece of information from his father. Let's look at, let's look deeper. Let's go and let's look at the other systems and see where he's been, what he's done, what has been said about him, his social media. If they had brought all that together before the bombings came and gratefully, you know, nobody died from what he did. And I'll say, you know, what he's accused of. Uh, But had there been a system in place, they could have gotten to the bottom of this way before, you know, they found 10 pipe bombs and, and four pressure cooker bombs and all these things and people getting well, shot and officers putting their life on the line to apprehend this individual. Well, I'll tell you what, it's going to continue. Ladies and gentlemen, I plead with you tonight, go to change.org, sign the petition, search IRP6. I'm telling you, I'll say it once, I'll say it twice, I'll say it again. The IRP6 can make it happen. We need President Obama. This plea is to him. Free the IRP-6 and do it now. Because I'm telling you, America's at the crossroad of decision, and our safety depends on it. Our security depends on it. Join us uh, later on as we continue this discussion on the IRP-6. Again, who are they? Dave Sapolo, Demetrius Harper, David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Clinton Stewart, Gary Walker. Go to change.org. Sign the petition now as we seek to bring these men home. Good night, America. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creeds. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that my poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I say to you today, my friend, let freedom ring. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, We will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last.